The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. was one of those huge, wrenching events for me, for everybody. I had all kinds of personal collections, people who died, and the whole thing was just devastating. And having grown up in the United Kingdom during the Troubles in Northern Ireland with multiple bomb attacks and you know, all kinds of uh, horrible terrorist attacks in the UK, you know, at least I had you know, some sort of sense of what might happen next. And I wanted to be involved in some way, you know, kind of apply my skills, try to serve the country. Now, obviously, I was a bit too old to be joining the military and you know, as a, a, a Russia you know, expert, I, I thought, well, I'll look for somewhere, the first opportunity that I can to apply these skills and, you know, what can I do here? But it was that kind of feeling the United States had given me so much. It had, by this point, it had transformed, you know, my whole life had been transformed and I was in 100%. And when I gave that oath of citizenship, I really felt a massive sense of responsibility because I'd studied, you know, for the civics part. I'd even had to take a, an English language test. And, you know, I'd really fully processed that I was taking an oath to the country, uh, an oath to to do something, you know, to protect the country as well and have a responsibility to the country, not just take something from it. I'm Alexander Vindman, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 19th, 2021. What ails us? Diagnosis and prescription geopolitics memoir. I sat down with Dr. Fiona Hill. Fiona Hill is the author of the new book, There is nothing for you here, finding opportunity in the 21st century. We discussed Russia's military buildup along Ukraine, immigration, and opportunities in the 21st century. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 19th, talking to Fiona Hill about her book, There's Nothing for You Here. Let's um, maybe just jump in to your book, which, which is fantastic. There's Nothing for You Here by Fiona Hill, Dr. Fiona Hill. And I think maybe we could start with this you know, the various kind of intersections that we have. And there's one particularly notable one, I think, with regards to the fact that we're both immigrants that wound up in the uh, White House. Why don't we start there? Tell us all about your immigrant background and how that contributed to you uh, entering your field and coming to the White House. Yeah. And actually, I mean, just as to, to flag uh, something that you know, but just for people listening, there was an awful lot of naturalized citizens in the White House. People who'd come from war-torn settings like the Balkans, uh, sometimes in the Middle East, Afghanistan and elsewhere, and who had naturalized and wanted to serve others who had come 
similar sort of pathways to uh, you and me brought as children and some who'd come for education. So brought as children in your case and, and, and my case came for education when I was already a young adult. And that experience of coming as a young adult, I think, really did shape my path towards where you and I intersected the National Security Council. You know, I was already, let's just say, politically aware, not in any kind of partisan fashion, but certainly engaged in issues. And, you know, I came of age in the United Kingdom at a very particular time, which I think really did shape all of my outlook, not just the content of the book, but my whole outlook on uh, world affairs. You know, first of all, I was 14 when Margaret Thatcher came into the prime ministership in the United Kingdom. I grew up in the northeast of England in an old coal mining and heavy industrial area, one which was dominated by nationalised industries. So really by the state, pretty much running everything in the region. Everyone I knew worked in one of the big industries. I didn't know really anybody who was in the private sector you know, a couple of people who were in sort of professional jobs, but, a, you know, kind of what we would sort of say, you know, kind of lower income, white collar professionals, a couple of people had their own businesses in terms of a small shop or a plumbing or electrical business, but everybody else worked for a big, you know, kind of company and coal mine or later the National Health Service uh, in the local hospital, which was the biggest employer after a while, after everything else closed down, other, you know, kind of manufacturing jobs, railway works, um, steel works, you know, that kind of thing. And when Margaret Thatcher, you know, comes in in 1979, when I was 14 years old, she begins the mass privatisation of uh, nationalised industry, you know, obviously to move Britain's economy onto a different footing, modernisation, automation, streamlining, making it all more competitive. It's the kind of policies that the United States also pursued in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan comes in a little bit uh, later. And that has a devastating effect on the north of England. And so that really kind of shapes my entire outlook. Hundreds of thousands of people lose their jobs all at once in my home region of County Durham, around my hometown of Bishop Auckland, because again, it had been dominated by all these state industries. And it wasn't like the private sector was kind of like jumping in to fill in, you know, kind of, uh, or to, you know, draft in behind. Uh, there was suddenly far too much competition for a dwindling number of jobs and the jobs were just fading away completely. And people didn't have, particularly the men, didn't have the capacity for retraining because there was no funds for that. There's no programs sort of set up. And so everyone was scrambling around looking for uh, something else that they could do. So I become, you know, essentially a product. And I come of age in a period of rapid and dramatic deindustrialization that pulls the rug out from under, you know, everybody I knew. At the same time uh, that's happening in this same period from 1977 uh, to 1987, it's the Euro missile crisis in world affairs. It's the crisis of the stationing of SS-20 and Pershing missiles in Europe. Star Wars, the Strategic Defence Initiative with Ronald Reagan, you know, hoping to be able to produce the capacity to shoot down Soviet intercontinental ballistic missiles heading in the direction of the United States, but leaving Europe from the vantage point of Europeans, you know, and young people like myself, completely exposed uh, to intermediate range nuclear forces. And so in that whole period that I'm going through sort of secondary uh, high school and into my first years in college, we've got these kind of dramatic events and frequent war scares. We've got protests all over the campaign of nu for nuclear disarmament, all of popular culture and politics are infused by the idea of an impending nuclear Armageddon. 
you know, at sort of times we're getting instructed on, you know, how to protect ourselves against these sort of inevitable nuclear clash between the United States and Soviet Union. <laughs> you get um, public service announcements telling you how to hide in a ditch if you find out, <laughs> you find yourself out in the countryside when the sirens go off, or you know, can you all fit under the cupboard under the stairs? People who've read Harry Potter probably know that most British houses have a cupboard under the stairs. <laughs> How many people can you squeeze in there, you know, to ride out a nuclear winter, you know, for a period of time? It's all a bit preposterous. And that basically, uh, those two things kind of combine together. And, you know, I, I want to get an education. My father tells me I need to leave the northeast of England. There's nothing for me there. Uh, I need to look for opportunity elsewhere. And the whole international atmosphere, because everybody in the UK in that period, you know, tends to watch the BBC news. We don't have this whole proliferation of TV programmes and channels, you know, like we do now. Everybody is always kind of glued to either the, the lunch time or the tea time news or the nine o'clock news at night, you know, when everyone's about to get ready to go to bed for the next day. We all kind of know things are happening. And so I decided to go and study Russian. And, you know, I set myself on this odyssey of studying Russian, trying to kind of like figure out what I might be able to do. I think I might become a translator. Maybe I can help be a, maybe even a junior diplomat if I'm really ambitious and, you know, help broker uh, some kind of uh, nuclear talks at some point if I've learned Russian to you know, good enough level. But I'm also continuously fascinated in not always a good way, perhaps uh, by the idea of deindustrialization, the impact that this has. And I start to pursue on my own time, really, a lot of studies into economic and social history and other issues, trying to sort of understand how a region like my own can be kind of left behind in these larger economic shifts. So there's a lot going on back in the um, 1970s and 1980s. And so by the time I come to the United States in 1989, which coincides with the end of the Cold War, I've you know got a lot rattling around in my head about things I'm trying to kind of figure out. And I think ultimately all of that ends up leading me on a pathway where I intersect with you. Well, what's what's fascinating about this is that you wrote a memoir that's not just kind of the relevant biographical details or the the formative experiences, which frankly is a lot of what, what I included in mind, but you designed it to diagnose and prescribe solutions. So diagnose the lack of policy vision going into the 21st century deindustrialization in uh, the developed economies and people being left behind, infrastructure not existing to sustain innovation or at least not for everyone, not not equal opportunities for, for all. That's the probably the most interesting. I mean, your entire background is interesting, but that is interesting because it's relevant to providing solutions moving forward. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on why you settled on, on this particular format and uh, some conclusions. Yeah, well, if you think, Alex, about why your family came to the United States, I mean, there was a bit of a push and pull, right? I mean, you came from a family in the Soviet Union. I mean, you can talk about that yourself and you have done you know, great length in your book. Your family were Jewish and obviously there was a lot of discrimination against uh, Jews in the Soviet Union. But the Soviet Union was not a place generally for most people with a lot of opportunity. And when your father uh, decides to emigrate with you and your brothers and your grandmother, there's a hope about creating a new life for you and the next uh, generation. It comes at great expense to him, obviously. Uh, it's a huge thing to move and to dislocate um, everyone from everybody you know, who'd been your support mechanisms back there. It's a huge risk, as you write, to 
comes with no money in his pocket. But there is this whole sense that America is the land of limitless opportunities, as it has been for generations of people leaving, you know, what was the former Soviet Union, the Russian Empire back in the day, all across Europe at times when European countries were incredibly poor and people would get on a boat to America and hope to get a new life for themselves. And if not for themselves, then definitely for their children and grandchildren. And there was always this sense that in America, you would have social mobility as a great possibility and more of a chance in the United States than anywhere else of moving ahead from you know the very bottom to the top. Not everyone was going to be rich and make their fortune, but certainly people could make a better life for themselves. Well, that's just not the case anymore. I mean, when I came to the United States in 1989, your family by that time was, you know, quite well settled. And you were also, you know, kind of beginning with your steps towards the military and, you know, kind of a, a different a different life from certainly what your father and your grandmother had had. But, you know, for people born in the 1980s and in the 1990s, the opportunities that I experienced and that you experienced earlier on were starting to dwindle. I mean, I certainly had the impression that pretty much anybody could do whatever they wanted in the United States. That was kind of that's the founding myth or the expectation, the American dream of, of moving ahead. But now only 7% of people can have any kind of expectation of moving from the bottom quintile, the bottom 20% in society to the top in terms of their earning capacity and you know their overall socioeconomic status. And that's shockingly low, 7%. I mean, if anybody said that to your dad, you know, when he was um, leaving uh, Kiev, he would have uh, thought twice, right? Maybe he'd gone somewhere else. Certainly, uh, well, I thought it was like at least 50%, you know, when I kind of came over to the United States. And certainly for me, there was just amazing sets of opportunities that weren't there in the UK. And frankly, the UK in terms of social mobility is quite uh, far behind as well. But European countries, those same countries that had been very poor and that pushed out all of the, you know, populations who just couldn't get ahead in their own society in the 1900s or, you know, immediately after World War II when Europe was in rubble at the, at the end of, of the war and people came en masse to the United States. Those societies now have a far greater chance uh, in the upper 30s, 40 percent of social mobility in some cases. Certainly, you know, the 20 percent in, in, in others, um, as I said, though, the United Kingdom is somewhat behind that. And it's that lack of opportunity, the kind of grinding to a halt and the, or the slowdown, dramatic slowdown of the American dream, that idea that we can all get ahead, that we all can find a different place for ourselves. We can reinvent ourselves. We can, you know, stay in place if we want to and, and do something or we can move around. The United States has also become less geographically mobile than it was after World War II. People are tending to stay in place. They they don't see the opportunity uh, to move to different cities. We have geographic divisions. People who live in incredibly diverse places like we do in, you know, uh, Maryland, Virginia, you know, the D.C. region with lots of different demographics uh, and then places in the Midwest, you know, for example, towns and you know, parts of cities that are pretty homogenous and, you know, they, they don't have the same sort of vibrancy and sets of expectations. Education has become a dividing line. People who uh, only have a high school degree feel completely left out of uh, the economy because those jobs for people with just a high school qualification have dried up. And although, you know, one point before COVID and the pandemic and the lockdowns, you could have a portfolio of small jobs and, you know, really kind of get ahead, combining perhaps, you know, a, a rideshare job with Lyft or Uber, you know, with a job in a restaurant or a bar. And, you know, all of those jobs came without protections. 
because one of the big problems in the United States is benefits, healthcare benefits, pension benefits that all come with a larger employer. And they don't when you're kind of self-employed and you know cobbling things together. And in Europe, of course, those kinds of benefits, healthcare in particular, have been decoupled from the workplace. They're part of kind of the state system. People pay for them through their taxes, but they're, they're not tied to work in the way that they are in the United States because of those um, experiences in Europe of just sort of devastation repeatedly of economic depressions, recessions, crises and wars, which made it very clear that unemployment was always going to be a feature. Poverty was always going to be a, fe- a feature. And you needed to have some kind of basic safety net to stop literally millions of people from being on the streets as they were after you know World War II, for example. So the United States went down a different path. And, you know, now, you know, if you're not one of that uh, top 20% or even in some cases the top 1%, you can't expect to have the same opportunities as anyone else. And that feeds into political grievance, populism, identity differences. And when we get behind a lot of the hype partisan political grandstanding, we find that people have the same concerns over the same issues. But these grievances, socioeconomic grievances, have been translated into kind of cultural values grievances. And now our democracy is under threat as well, because that promise, that expectation of the American dream of being able to move ahead has gone. You know, it's interesting. I think a part of the history of the United States that allowed it to prosper and become uh, the world's greatest economic powerhouse, this individualism, people working on their own to uh, create their futures and, and fortunes is potentially or something that's now holding us back because there seems to be a need for basic supports, especially in this midst of a, a 21st century transition. You know, we're, we're at the tail end of a transition away from the industrial age to an information age and right. the geographies that centered around manufacturing river networks, road networks, those are not the kind of infrastructure that's needed for, for the 21st century. And the government's uh, belief in the fact that it might not have a role or has a limited role is not allowing us to, to keep pace with the change and leaving large segments behind. I still have this, I mean, maybe it's an artifact for me, but I still believe this country has lots of opportunity for people, but it probably is pockets of opportunity. Yes. It's pockets of opportunity that for people that are willing to, to and I, I don't want to overstate this because there are systemic issues, but for, you know, you have to put an extra level of effort in with regards to mobility, with regards to education, that not everybody is well postured to seize on, to keep pace with the, the economy moving forward. So we have this idea of coastal elites and the, and the middle America being left behind. That's not going to change on its own. It's going to require government policies to, to help those uh, populations uh, catch up. Yes, exactly, um, Alex. We do need some kind of intervention here in the framework of thinking about development or redevelopment. The kinds of things that we see the United States doing overseas, actually, after World War II uh, through uh, institutions like the World Bank. I worked for years for um, foundation, the Eurasia Foundation, that gave grants uh, to sort of small businesses and all kinds of groups in the former Soviet Union to get people, you know, into new mindsets uh, for entrepreneurship and innovation, and you know, thinking how communities could turn themselves around, or you could, you know, develop, you know, small businesses that could start to hire people. Just think of, you know, new ways of doing things. Uh, so, you know, kind of a, an, an infusion 
of cash came along with programs, projects that were basically generated by people themselves that they took, you know, responsibility for. It was teaching people to fish rather than giving them the fish, you know, that standard drop that actually, you know, is uh, still fairly uh, meaningful. But it's like we say it's pockets because the United States does have an incredible dynamism, vibrancy, you know, for an awful lot of people who are living, say, in Silicon Valley or Chicago or, you know, kind of a whole host of, you know, places around the United States, this may seem alien because the, the urban areas or even, you know, some of the rural areas urban areas that they're in now are diverse, are vibrant, are centers of innovation, centers of investment. You know, there's kind of major companies, you know, who are there. You know, I think about Massachusetts and Cambridge Mass, where I first arrived in the United States when I went to Harvard at graduate school. When I got there in 1989, it was it had fallen on hard times. I mean, Harvard was doing fine, but all of the um, areas around Harvard, they were seeing the mass shutdown of their old industries, textile mills, manufacturing, you know, plants, meatpacking plants, auto manufacturing, brickworks, you know, they were all on their way out. And Harvard and uh, MIT nearby were sort of cannibalizing some of the old buildings and the old areas and sort of turning them into new labs and student dorms and things like this. But now, you know, you go to these same places and they've got uh, all of these high tech, biotech, digital companies there. And it's, you know, really buzzing, you know, kind of a great atmosphere, young people coming in, lots of immigrants, you know, kind of coming in to study there and staying on and setting up their own businesses. It couldn't be, you know, more different. And yet there are still pockets all around Boston, you know, kind of the suburbs that are still stuck. And that, you know, people feel the same sense of dislocation as they did before. And, you know, often this is concentrated in minority, you know, black and other ethnic populations. You know, when I was in Boston, of course, the the Irish uh, population, South Boston, elsewhere, weren't doing especially well, and you know there may not have been, you know, still some of the transformation of those areas and many of the suburban places too. So a lot of this has to be really targeted, but you've got to get the communities involved, which is what I learned uh, through you know development work in in other places, and so we have to really kind of think about how we tackle this not just on the sort of national level, but at the state and local government level and how we harness those kind of pockets of innovation to help other places as well. Because so many people do still feel, you know, left behind. And, you know, what you were saying then too about that individual expectation that it's up to you to pull yourself by by your bootstraps, get your boots on and get walking and move. A lot of people just can't move. I mean, if you think back about how difficult it was for your family to move, but you didn't just kind of end up on the streets of New York homeless. There were some uh, mechanisms to help you there. There were mechanisms, you know, among the community to help people get settled. I mean, I came as a graduate student, you know, so I had a plane ticket bought for me because I had a scholarship. I had a place to stay. I had a whole network of contacts uh, set up. And there's an awful lot of people in the United States who can't move somewhere else because they don't have the information, they don't have the assets to move. You know, they maybe don't own their own house. And if they do, it might be in an undesirable area where, you know, nobody wants to buy it. You know, and what are they going to do? Get a a greyhound bus? We always going to see that in movies and just sort of end up in the street with a bag and, you know, hope in a new place that they'll be able to find somewhere to stay. Well, if they don't have any money, how are they going to do that? And I mean, this is, you know, part of the problem is that not everybody has that capacity, that capability to move. They may not have any qualifications. The United States is very strange in that a lot of qualifications are not recognized nationally. It's not just lawyers and doctors that have to qualify for regional and state boards, but you know other qualifications are not recognized from state to state. There's not kind of national standards in some cases. 
And then, you know, people, if they haven't got anything other than a high school degree, the demand for, you know, manual work in restaurants and, you know, other places all kind of got closed down during COVID and the pandemic. It might not, you know, kind of uh, return to the same kinds of levels. There's all kinds of constraints here. So this is a multifaceted, multi-pronged approach that we need. We need to kind of think about the United States as we would think of some of the other countries that have got themselves into trouble need to be rebuilt, not just about physical infrastructure of how people can get from A to B, but the other kinds of infrastructure that I call in the book, the infrastructure of opportunity, what enables you to move on to do something else. And I know in the UK, for example, it was almost impossible to move to London from the northeast of England for the same kinds of reasons. And many people from the northeast of England found themselves living on the streets of London, so-called rough sleepers, because they didn't have a place to stay, they didn't have a network. And I quip in the book that it was easier to move from Warsaw in Poland to London than it was from, you know, Wall's End in uh, the northeast of England. Because, you know, the Poles, when they moved to the UK, set up these, you know, networks to help other fellow Polish immigrants. Uh, and there wasn't that kind of network for anybody coming from other parts of the country. You know, it's interesting. This Some of the, the prescriptions here require resources being allocated you know, by different echelons, the national level, the state level. But it also comes at a moment where confidence in government is extremely low. And part of this is is that there are parties that see utility in demonizing government for political gain. So I, I'm curious, I don't I don't see national decisions being the, the solution here, but maybe national resources being allocated to state and local uh, governments, especially in hard hit areas, potentially addressing the, the education and infrastructure needed to help, really frankly, to help regions catch up. Right. I mean, that's actually what I say in the book. I'm, I'm equally sceptical about the ability for certainly the federal government to be able to get its act together on this, given partisan infighting polarisation, the kind of gridlock that we see, and the difficulties that we've seen for the current government passing the infrastructure bill and the inability of the previous one to pass the infrastructure bill. I mean, that, that has now passed. There's all the questions now about how that will be funded, the so-called Build Back Better bill that's... Um, still on the the docket to get uh, passed is under a lot of scrutiny, even though it includes elements that many people, I think it would say the majority of people in the United States would like to see, perhaps not the entirety of them, but you know, certain elements, there's all kinds of groups that are very supportive of. So actually, I, I mean, I argue in the book that it needs to be a public, private, and you know, as you're saying, multifaceted approach to this state and local government communities. And in fact, at the end of the book, all the prescriptions that I have are for individuals. You know, people like you and me, what more can we be doing? Because I'm becoming more convinced it's going to take grassroots mobilization, nonprofits, universities, think tanks, you know, kind of trying to stimulate change, foundations, corporations in working together with local government. And, you know, I talk in the book about a number of things that I've seen that, you know, really quite impressive in different places. So, for example, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, the Lehigh Valley have got a regional development effort that brings together, you know, private sector, the local government and, you know, kind of local universities like Lehigh University to start to uh, think about how they can draw upon all of those local assets to turn the place around. And Bethlehem, Pennsylvania has gone from being this blighted steel town to you know, a place that's generating new jobs and uh, new ideas of how to use the old steelworks, for example. Part of it's a casino, part of it's um, more of a 
you know, kind of entertainment, kind of convention uh, centre, for example. And then, you know, you think about other community projects. I didn't manage to get this into the book because I came across them while I'd already mostly finished it. But there's this amazing initiative in Portland, Maine. Portland, another place that's really kind of lost its mainstay industries, became actually a very welcoming place for refugees and immigrants in an unexpected way, really completely changing the demography of, uh, of, of the city. And Portland uh, and Maine, the state of produced vouchers for kids to use in after school activities uh, to give them you know continuing education and mentorship through a whole host of programs and one initiative Portland Community Squash which I would urge people to go and take a look at is doing amazing things for kids and their families from all kinds of backgrounds and offering them basically scholarships to take them uh, through this kind of community project from elementary school all the way through high school and then helping them get on to college, you know, using Squash the Game, as I, I say that because at one point I said it and somebody thought I was talking about Squash the Vegetable and thought this was mm-hmm. remarkably odd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although, you know, maybe Maine is good, you know, for squash growing. But anyway, uh, Squash the Game and community sports as a kind of a portal for all kinds of community programs and initiatives. And they've been raising extra money. They're trying to take this nationally. This is like a fantastic idea of how a community can pull together. And the whole idea is to have every kid in Portland and every kid then by extension in the state of Maine have something like that. Squash, photography, ballet, science, chess, you know, after school to feed into their interests that they and their families can be involved in. That will then help them to go on to some form of higher education as well to get the educational bug and to have, you know, skills and leadership experience. You know, they do summer camps, all kinds of things. And we can all do this. We don't have to wait for the federal government to do this. This is completely funded by contributions from the local community. They're pooling assets. And then on top of that, some money from the state, the state of Maine, giving these vouchers to kids for after-school activities. So we don't have to wait around for this. And in fact, you know, that used to be part of the spirit of the United States. It's not just individuals doing things, it's mutual self-help. Every individual in the United States, but perhaps apart from the mountain men and the trappers, you know, who literally lived on their own out in the wilderness, really had a lot of help from their local communities. Those early settlers, you know, banded together out on the plains, you know, for example, you know, when they were, you know, first uh, settling there, certainly Native American uh, tribes, it was all about, you know, self-help. Our founding myth may focus on rugged individualism, but everybody, you know, kind of from early on, you know, in the United States, the first pilgrims coming to Massachusetts needed the help of the Wampanoag, you know, Native Americans, you know, for example. You know, this whole idea that you do it all on your own is just not true. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
You know, this is uh, frankly one of the most interesting aspects of, of the book. And uh, on this basis alone, your diagnosis and prescriptions to start addressing some of the uh, systemic issues in, in, in the U.S. is fascinating. But you and I share something in the way we, we wrote our uh, books in that we also identified individual prescriptions in, in certain ways. Maybe I did it a little bit more directly in identifying, you know, what were the key moments in my background and how they contributed to decision making around the Ukraine scandal and uh, testimony and so forth. But I'd like to maybe uh, talk about some of the individual aspects in our backgrounds. I think there's something we started with immigration early, and uh, there's something about this idea of being drawn to serve as an immigrant. What What is your, your view on this? It's uh, a generalization, but there is something to this idea of wanting to give back, wanting to serve. Yeah, look, you yourself served in multiple capacities, and I'm sure you're going to go on to you know do this again, joining the military along with uh, you know your brother and um, basically then wanting to serve in a, a different uh, capacity in the NSC when you were detailed over and you know more in a kind of civilian context though you were still in you know the military when you were doing this and I'm not sure you know whether well perhaps you would remember it then I mean I imagine you would because uh, I don't know what age uh, would this be when you were 18 when you became a naturalized citizen. I mean, you could talk about this when I just sort of say what, um, you know, that was like for me. You know, I came to study in the United States. I I didn't come initially with the intention that I was definitely going to stay. I came, you know, to get the qualifications and I did apply to go back to the United States, to uh, the United Kingdom rather, to join the Foreign Service. And by a bizarre quirk of fate, you know, because I was pursuing that idea of maybe an interpreter or, you know, junior diplomat I might help with, you know, nuclear arms deals, you know, things like this. I um, I applied to the Foreign Service and I applied for a very specific entry cohort that was going to go more into analysis because I'd just done a master's degree in what was then Soviet studies just before the Soviet Union fell apart. And they lost my application forms. I mean, they literally lost them down the back of a radiator in the Foreign Office, one of these old fashioned, you know, kind of massive, you know, water-filled giant radiators that you kind of see in the movies that probably don't exist there anymore. And in the United States, it's mostly sort of forced air. But anyway, my application form, so the final selection had been put on some windowsill by someone who had fallen down the back of the radiator with somebody else's. I never heard back, you know, even though I'd got all of my paperwork in, I'd got into the final, you know, group of people. And by the time I, you know, called, because I'd had a, a note basically confirming that, you know, certified delivery, they said to me, sorry, no, can't find your applications. And I said, but they were received. And they said, well, you're too late. Um, You'll have to reapply. And then they found my materials, but, you know, they weren't going to reopen that last uh, section again. And reapplying was going to be two years from from then because they didn't uh, recruit for this cohort of of people every, every year. And so I just was devastated. Obviously, I thought, what am I going to do? I put all my eggs in that one little basket that had disappeared behind a radiator. So then I just had to kind of rethink. And I found there was opportunities to stay on campus at Harvard and work. And I got involved in the technical assistance projects and the Kennedy School, initially as a translator. So indeed, I did work as a translator and interpreter for you know quite a period. And then that all kind of blossomed into other jobs. And I end up, you know, basically marrying an American. And then 9-11 happened. And at that point, I am really convinced at this one that I'm staying in the United States and that I really want to do something, you know, to serve the country. 
So I get my citizenship and I start to look for this opportunity to give something back because America has opened up all these amazing opportunities. I'm married to an American. I'm very committed to the country. At every turn, there's been something new. You know, I, I love my life in the United States. Despite all the issues that I see in the United States, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm smitten. <laughs> and I, I really want to do something. And 9-11 was one of those huge wrenching events for me, for everybody. I had all kinds of personal connections with people who died and it just the whole thing was just devastating. And having grown up in the United Kingdom during the Troubles in Northern Ireland with multiple bomb attacks and, you know, all kinds of uh, horrible terrorist attacks in the UK, you know, at least I had, you know, some sort of sense of what might happen next. And I wanted to be involved in some way, you know, kind of apply my skills, try to serve the country. Now, obviously, I was a bit too old to be joining the military and, you know, as a, a, a Russia, you know, expert, I, I thought, well, I'll look for somewhere, the first opportunity that I can to apply these skills and, you know, what can I do here? But it was that kind of feeling the United States had given me so much. It had, by this point, it had transformed, you know, my whole life had been transformed and I was in 100%. And when I gave that oath of citizenship, I really felt a massive sense of responsibility because I'd studied, you know, for the civics part. I'd even had to take an English language test. And, you know, I'd really fully processed that I was taking an oath to the country, uh, an oath to, to do something, you know, to protect the country as well and have a responsibility to the country, not just take something from it. So there's something unique in the giving back notion, of course, that comes with recognizing, you know, to one who uh, much is given, uh, much is expected. But there's also something more common that we share with public servants. And it's the fact that public service is inherently rewarding. We both found enormous opportunities through our, our different service that were professionally and personally rewarding, you know, that were extremely exciting, uh, whether it was uh, serving, you know, as an infantryman in, in combat or as an attache in Moscow, and then you know, influencing decision makers in the Pentagon or the White House, it's enormously rewarding. And I think because it's such a small subset of the American population does choose to serve or selects a career of service, that people don't quite recognize that. And I think both both you and I have this passion about talking about public service in that regard. But as an aside, I wanted to mention, you know, you you talked about like fortunes and, and fates kind of with your application disappearing that kind of push you in this direction. You know uh, that I, I joined as a, a Russia director initially, and really it was a turn of fate that I picked up Ukraine. Yes. We were short a Ukraine director. Yeah, I, I was that hand of fate there, which, um, yes, turned out into some very strange paths, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It's interesting. So I think, you know, it would be interesting just to talk about our, our time in the White House what was your biggest frustration about serving in the White House? I mean, there were any number of them, but what kind of jumps out at you from serving in the White House? Well, look, just the example that you uh, raised about how, you know, you ended up, you know, doing something different was just constant change. So, you know, we really couldn't, couldn't have continuity of personnel. I mean, you know, as everyone's you know well aware, President Trump just cycled through advisors, cabinet members, you know, kind of, uh, there was a core of people who always stayed around him, but, you know, everybody else was pretty dispensable. It was just so much drama all the time. But, you know, in, in your case, um, as you're you know, well aware, as you said, you were brought on to work on Russian defence issues. And, you know, whether another colleague of ours, you know, who ended up leaving, you know, as well. And, 
you know, before you even got in the job, there was massive change again. There was just constant restructuring and, you know, moving, you know, all the personnel around. And the decision uh, was made, you know, kind of other levels uh, by one of the, you know, deputy national security advisors to put all of the defence um, issues, even if they were regionally focused, into the defence directorate. And your paperwork had already come through, so you were already on your way as far as uh, you know military marching orders are concerned to our directorate to work on that topic. And so you know it wasn't like you could be suddenly redirected towards a billet somewhere else in the, the defence directorate. And so, you know, at this point, we were trying to kind of rethink how we were going to, yet again, because of all the changeover, constant changeover, structure the directorate looking at, you know, Europe and Russia. And it was obvious that Belarus and Ukraine and Moldova, you know, were going to be flashpoints. And they were also the targets of Russian military activity in all, you know, three cases. You know, Belarus being actually the site of a lot of stationing of Russian troops and exercises. And you'd, you know, taken, you know, quite a look at this when you were over at the chairman's office. You were, you know, with General Dunford in the chairman's office. And, you know, you knew a lot about what was going on in all of these places. And, you know, plus, you know, your family background, you were originally from Kiev, even though, you know, your family were predominantly uh, Russian speakers. So I thought, well, okay, let's put Alex on this. <laughs> and yeah. you know, the rest is history because this, you know, made the most sense and was would play to, you know, your skill set. And, you know, of course, this was a perpetual problem. This was the great frustration that we could never really have any continuity of effort because there was just constant change. And of course, you know, we had a colleague who ended up with like, you know, kind of a ridiculous number of uh, countries under his belt, pretty yep. much the whole of Eastern Europe, because, you know, there was nobody else uh, who could come in and, uh, and do those. And he ended up just for the whole time he was there, you know, covering 20 odd countries, which was, you know, kind of ridiculous. We were constantly improvising as things changed around us. And I think that that really hurt, you know, the ability of the administration to have, consistent foreign policy because behind the scenes putting aside everything that we know about you know what was going on and what was happening there was a lot of continuity in u.s foreign and security policy and you know even all of the other issues aside trump in some respects was asking the hard questions that needed to be asked and you know some of his shaking everything up you know, could have been addressed in a pretty sensible consistent way but it was impossible to do so because every five minutes somebody was being sacked and somebody else was being brought in and we were kind of starting from scratch. And many of the people who were being brought in were very political. They weren't, you know, kind of versed in the issues. And, you know, they had obviously, you know, kind of different goals, as we know, we learned. There was a lot of effort to privatise US national security policy yeah. by all kinds of lobbyists, uh, advocacy groups, people who were kind of close to the president, you know, for their own personal, private uh, financial gain, commercial gain. And the whole, you know, sort of system of interagency coordination and, you know, kind of coherent policy uh, just started to break down as a result. Yeah. So it's interesting that you also cover this. In addition to the diagnosis and pr prescription of systemic ills in the U.S., you also cover uh, the Trump White House and some of the shortfalls. And I, I share, shared many of the same, you know, regrets and frustrations about how things operated uh, at, at the Trump White House. Now. Since we're on the topic of, you know, geopolitics, you know, you're the foremost expert on Vladimir Putin. You're uh, a, an expert on Russia. And uh, that wasn't really a key feature in this book. So you took a different approach in writing this one. I'd like to hear about that one and maybe just spend a couple of minutes talking about what's going on in, in geopolitics. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I'd already written, along with a colleague at Brookings, Clifford Gaddy, two versions of a book on Vladimir Putin operative in the Kremlin. The first one, you know, was um, published in 2013, you know, from a whole period when Putin had just decided to return to the presidency after spending you know, a four-year term as prime minister because he'd already done two terms as president, you know, and this was before the annexation of Crimea and all the incursions into Donbass and uh, other places. And, you know, we were trying to really understand what made Putin tick, what motivated and, you know, what drove him to do certain things because I'd been the national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia for a long period from the beginning of 2006 to the end of 2009, going from the Bush to the Obama administrations. And I'd been really struck by how little we really grasped of Putin himself, you know, because of being a former KGB agent and obviously still part of the mothership. He's been very good at, you know, kind of keeping parts of his private life hidden and, you know, kind of uh, a lot of the drivers and motivations at that point, you know, were not quite so clear. I would say that a lot of it is now. And, after the annexation of Crimea and the war in Donbass, we decided to expand the book and explain, you know, how that had all come about because it was kind of obvious from the research that we'd been doing. You know, I can't say that I then, you know, kind of predicted the incursions into Syria or, you know, kind of later, you know, what the Putin decided to do in 2016 in terms of, you know, the intervention in our elections, but it followed a pattern. But maybe it was just a sort of failure of of imagination at all of our parts to think that Putin would be and the intelligence services would be successful in doing something against the United States that they've done against all of the kind of countries in the uh, immediate orbit, you know, Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus, you know, Georgia, you know, you name it. I mean, basically, we proved as vulnerable as many of uh, you know their former satellites to manipulation, and that, of course, was something of a shock. So I didn't really, you know, want to go back over all of the Putin stuff in this book. I really wanted to kind of put the Trump phenomenon and, you know, the things that we'd witness in this context as a, as a manifestation of all of these other problems. Because Trump is elected in office, not by Vladimir Putin and the security services, some people assumed, you know, early on, he's kind of was certainly willing to, you know, kind of uh, take advantage of the mayhem that the Russians were creating in terms of their hack and release of emails and all of uh, these other things that they were doing. I mean, this was a, a full frontal assault on our democratic systems by the Russians. They really wanted to reduce people's faith in the sanctity and fairness of US elections. But we have plenty of domestic actors who want to do that too. But yeah, they certainly succeeded in that regard. They wanted to cast a big cloud over whoever was president and that succeeded as well. But really what happened in 2016 was a manifestation of uh, all of the problems in the United States and what the Russians did, what you know, the internet research agency that was set up by Putin's former chef, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and the GRU, the Russian military intelligence, and all the other entities that were messing about in our elections, what they did was take advantage and exploit our vulnerabilities and weaknesses. So our cleavages, our partisan infighting, our political, social, cultural you know, divisions became fodder for their propaganda and other interference exercises. And, you know, this has always been the case, as you and I know, uh, right, going back to the Soviet era, to the very early times after the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, the Soviet Union would try to exploit America's problems in terms of, you know, the kind of interactions 
focusing in on racism, inequality, you know, the excesses of capitalism, as they would, you know, kind of put it, and trying to make the United States uh, look in a bad light. And during the Cold War, of course, there was all kinds of efforts on both sides. I was as well, you know, to sort of mess about. I mean, we, you know, moved away from those kinds of activities that, the, of course, the Russians think we're still engaged in, but um, they kept on going. And, you know, this is the dilemma that we have right now is that certainly from the Russian perspective, everything is still seen through a Cold War lens. You know, we in the United States have been trying to move on. But of course, what happened in 2016 makes that incredibly difficult, given, you know, the mess that this made in our domestic politics, the way that it kind of skewed the understanding of what had happened in the 2016 election. And everybody was focused in on Vladimir Putin and the Russian intelligence services and what their relationship was, you know, with uh, Trump and uh, his campaign. And, you know, not looking closely enough at what was actually going on in the United States and our own domestic politics. I mean, we're producing conspiracy theories, not just the, the Russians. We're exporting, you know, all kinds of alt-right, white supremacist, you know, anti-vax, uh, you know, you name it, groups and activities and sort of thinking to the rest of uh, Europe. And, you know, we are becoming our own worst enemies, even as then, you know, that prevents us from mounting collective action against the things that Russia continues to do. And so really our divisions have become a national security crisis and the Russians, you know, continue to pile on. And, you know, what we see right now is Putin taking advantage of an incredibly weakened United States, a weakened Europe, because some of these same contradictions are in the European space as well. The European Union, you know, getting torn apart after Brexit, uh, Poland, you know, being on the outs of the European Union, which is why Belarus and Russia are taking advantage of all of these tensions on the Belarusian-Polish border. I mean, basically, we just can't get our act together to push back is the basic problem. I, I think you uh, well outlined the opportunities that Russia sees, uh, that Putin sees. But there is also a need that uh, he's acting on with regards to Ukraine. Uh, we yep. briefly covered it yesterday. And that need is to retain Ukraine in, in his sphere of influence. Uh, Ukraine Absolutely. being central to... Russia's sense of exceptionalism and its uh, sense of history and that you know, whether they can consider the Ukrainians basically the same Slavic brothers or not, they are part of the, the Russian fold and uh, Ukraine's asserting its ind- sovereignty and independence doesn't fit into that. But also another kind of need in uh, insecurity about Ukraine's success and the, they, they are doing whatever they can to upend it. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. You know, for for Putin, if he wants to stay on in power, you know, until 2036, and, you know, he wants to keep a tight grip on uh, the Russian state so that he has the final say in who succeeds him or, you know, how the system takes shape, can't afford to have basically Ukraine going off in a different direction. There's also, and as you well know from all of your work, particularly at the, the, the Pentagon, this desire for sort of a strategic depth, you know, always kind of seeing Ukraine, Belarus, and, you know, there's, there's a kind of like the buffer, not wanting to see either of them move anywhere closer to Europe and NATO and European security uh, mechanisms. You know, there's just so much riding on this, you know, as you're pointing out, that Putin can't just afford Ukraine to be the one that gets away. And it's not sufficient anymore to have annexed Crimea, you know, that kind of throwback to sort of the imperial age um, of annexation. But the other more important point of the imperative for Putin is to make sure that Ukraine has no room for independent manoeuvre and that Russia always has a veto on its defence and foreign policy and in many respects also its economic policy and any other 
policies that may be challenging in some way to Putin himself personally. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. And the question is uh, really the question of the day is whether he's willing to, with a, the significant buildup on Ukraine's border, if he's willing to use military might, or is he willing to just escalate the situation to extract by diplomacy concessions that he's unwilling to, or he's unable to achieve through military activities? Yeah, and look, I mean, that's the big debate, right? A lot of people saying, oh, no way, Russia's not going to do this. Well, Russia's done it before. And that's the poor point with Putin. You know, for many years, we thought, oh, they were just bluffing. And then in 2008, what did they do? They went into Georgia. And, you know, people will say, well, you know, kind of Ukraine is much you know better position now than it was before to fend that off. Well, Georgians, you know, had been training with the United States, had uh, been in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, the Georgians did a much smaller country, you know, hold the Russians off and kind of shock them a little bit. But, you know, Putin, after a lot of threatening to Georgia and doing very similar things, exercises on the borders, certainly felt it incumbent upon him to uh, take action. Uh, even though this was during the Beijing, you know, Summer Olympics in 2008. And, uh, you know, there could have been really uh, serious consequences. The Russians weren't sure at that point whether we might intervene on behalf of Georgia, for example. Then, of course, they decided that we wouldn't and they pressed ahead. You know, they intervened in Syria um, in 2015 after, you know, kind of also annexing Crimea and uh, moving into the Donbass under, you know, the cover of proxies or the cover of a humanitarian exercise. So, you know, they've they've fired on U.S. troops uh, using the paramilitary formations of Wagner Group in Syria and ended up in a massive firefight and taking huge casualties on their side. You know, so the sort of idea that Russia wouldn't do something is kind of preposterous because, you know, for Putin, he has to make his threats credible and real. And for them to be credible and real, this is what I worry about, at times you have to take action, particularly if you don't feel that you're getting the response that you want you know, from everybody else, because these are pressure tactics to gain something. And if that pressure then involves sending the boys in, you know, in whatever limited incursion or maximal um, approach that they want to do, that will be part of the decision making. It's not just a contingency. It's, uh, you know, potential action. And that's what's so, of course, dangerous for everyone right now. And, you know, if he was sitting in the chairman's office in the Pentagon, I'm sure you'd be, um, you know, having a lot of concerns and, you know, worrying about talking to uh, the counterparts. There'd be a lot of messages being sent. But I think it can't be just the United States doing that. I mean, if Russia does do this, that sets in a tone for conflicts around the, the world. Yes. And look, um, we've already seen Azerbaijan and Armenia engage in a full-scale war a year ago and in recent uh, firefight again that had to be intervened in. And the Russians let Azerbaijan loose on Armenia to teach Armenia it was purportedly a close ally a lesson because Pashinyan the Armenian prime minister wasn't doing what Moscow wanted him to because he was elected by grassroots support same as Zelensky in Ukraine and Ukraine is even more important to Russia than Armenia and Armenia from Moscow's point of view needed to be taught a lesson and they let the Azeris do that so again thresholds have been crossed people were telling themselves for years that nothing would happen uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan because it would always be restrained and then it wasn't. So that's just the, the lesson there that we have to be you know, very mindful that if Putin says that they're going to do something, that there is a pretty good chance that they will because he'll feel it's necessary. So how do you turn it off? Because there are so many reasons why they would do something right now. So what are the reasons why they won't? Could China be 
angered by the idea of another split screen invasion, you know, during the Chinese Winter Olympics that happened in the Summer Olympics in 2008. Could you get other countries with territorial disputes that might be really concerned about this, like India and Japan, that might worry about what the precedents might be set for China to put pressure on the Russians not to do anything? The Turks gave the Ukrainians drones. You know, the Russians are saying they dominate the Black Sea. Well, Turkey is a major Black Sea power as well. And although Turkey's been pretty much fixated on the Eastern Mediterranean, seems to forget at times its NATO role, maybe Turkey won't take too kind to this. There are already you know, tensions with Russia and Turkey in Syria and also in the Caucasus after Turkey jumped in to help Azerbaijan as well. So, you know, this, this is a complex situation here. And I think we'd need pressure from a whole host of other countries as well and collective you know, response from our European allies, because this is all about European security. This isn't a proxy conflict between the United States and Russia, as some people are trying to uh, portray it. And this is all about a country that has been fighting for its independence in Europe, Ukraine, like many other countries. Finland had to do this in the Winter War, you know, against uh, Russia after getting its independence from uh, the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union, the Baltic states, you know, kind of got pulled back in again by the, the Soviet Union after World War Two, having been independent. Poland, you know, all of these other European countries, you know, in the Balkans and others, their fates are all a question mark if Russia succeeds in this regard. You know, this is a, a perfect place to uh, wind down our conversation, our comfort zone, geopolitics and, and Russia. A lot more to be said on this particular topic, but this was a terrific conversation on on your amazing new book, uh, New York Times bestseller, There Is Nothing Here For You. Thank you, Fiona. Oh, thanks so much, Alex. It's always nice to have a chat. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the Lawfare Podcast and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Go to thelawfarestore.com for brand new Lawfare pens, lanyards, t-shirts, and socks. The podcast is edited by Jen Patyahal, and our audio engineer this week was Hamza Shitu of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, and as always, thank you for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.